Acts chapter 15, verses 19 through 35. Acts 15, beginning in verse 19. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. In our last study, we worked through Luke's record of the Jerusalem Conference a gathering of representatives from the congregation in Antioch and the leaders of the Christians in Jerusalem, including the apostles, to consider a matter that was causing significant dispute and division among the believers throughout the world. There are a few points we might make about the things we have learned to lay a foundation for what we will encounter in the text we are about to study. First, this conference demonstrates that among ancient Christians, there was an interest in unity and harmony with all of Christ's people, not merely within the local congregation. As we noted in our last study, this was not a gathering of representatives from all the congregations in the world. Rather, it was representatives from two congregations with an existing relationship, both of which were directly involved in the issue at hand. However, it is noteworthy that those in Antioch were not satisfied to be speaking something significantly at variance with their brothers and sisters, though they were separated by many miles. Second, this conference gives an example of how believers are to approach a serious dispute over a matter of faith 
in which compromise is impossible. In passages like 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, Paul expressed that in some cases there may be a meaningful disagreement between brethren in which one party believes he or she has a liberty to do something one way or another, but the other party believes that one way is wrong and sinful. And in that case, the one who feels he or she has liberty is obligated by the Spirit of Christ to sacrifice personal liberty for the conscience of the other brother or sister. Paul reasons that the one with a scruple cannot compromise without defiling his or her conscience, so the liberated one must make the move. This is a great manifestation of Christian character, as the Apostle noted in 1 Corinthians 11.1 and Philippians 2, 1-11, and it creates a climate of edification through which issues of disagreement can be resolved in time by collective spiritual growth. However, there are some occasions in which both parties in a dispute have strong convictions which are mutually exclusive. Neither can give or relent without violating what he or she is fully persuaded to be the will or truth of God. The situation in Acts 15 was of this kind. The Judaizers believed that without adherence to their list of Mosaic regulations, one could not be saved. Paul contended that if a man accepted the Judaizer model and sought to be justified by works of law, he would most certainly be lost, Galatians 5 and verse 4. Paul himself said that he would not yield submission even for an hour, Galatians 2, 5, to those promoting this position because to do so would undermine the truth of the gospel. What then was the answer? How could the church survive this crisis without a division? The Jerusalem Conference is the pattern. After sharp disputes proved to accomplish nothing, a group of representatives noted for their wisdom, expertise, and knowledge in the Word of God came together to consider the matter on behalf of all. It was not settled with a fiat, but rather the group considered testimony and evidence with the Scripture as the supremely governing principle and worked through the issues until all these agreed. Then the truth prevailed, and those who had been wrong submitted to God. That is, of course, an abbreviation and perhaps an oversimplification of how things transpired, but not too much. And the point is that in cases of doctrinal conflict where brothers cannot compromise their position without both defiling their consciences, they must allow time and space for discussion, debate, and evaluation. They must permit the most noble and informed representatives of their position to mediate, they must agree that the absolute governing standard for the establishment of truth is the Word of God in Scripture, and they must be resolutely determined to maintain both the unity of the body and the purity of the faith. In this case, the dispute was over what it takes to be faithful to Jesus Christ, the condition of justification. The Judaizers argued that faithfulness meant becoming a Jew by compliance with a short list of instructions from the Law of Moses. Paul contended that faithfulness was not compliance with a short list of instructions, but a complete surrender of one's own will to the Spirit of God. That fundamental issue of the nature of the gospel was certainly on the mind of those who were gathered, but the discussion focused on the Judaizers' insistence that one must become a Jew to be saved. 
Peter pointed out that even those who were Jews were not truly faithful to the law of Moses, and Paul and Barnabas testified that God validated their ministry to non-Jews with miracles and signs. And finally, James the elder, the director of the conference, showed that the prophets had foreseen the salvation of the nations along with Israel during the Messianic age. So all these things agreed. Picking up then in verse 19, James says, Therefore, based on the points just mentioned, I judge. In his position at the conference, James's judgment is not his own personal subjective opinion, but rather a statement summarizing the conclusions of the collective deliberations. Verse 19 continues, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Many of these Gentiles already believed in Yahweh and even worshipped him, but they had not become Jewish. So when James says that they were turning to God, he is referring to their faith in and conversion to Jesus Christ. Troubling them is exactly what Paul accused the Judaizers of doing in Galatians 1.7. But that word might come across too light. It is not merely an annoyance. When Paul said the Galatians were being troubled, he went on to express that their very salvation was being threatened. When they were convinced that their faithfulness to Christ was essentially dependent on the laws of Moses, which the Judaizers bound on them, that fundamentally altered the truth of the gospel. Justification was no longer on the basis of the work of Christ by means of pardon on the condition of faith in Jesus. Rather, it was on the basis of a person's conformity to necessary deeds by means of perfection, at least in regard to those deeds, on the condition of doing the necessary deeds. And as you can see, Christ has no place in that system, at least not as a Savior. Later, James will call this approach a burden. And the reality had been well expressed by Peter that the burden of the law of Moses was one that even the Jews had proven unable to bear. With this in mind, however, the next words are vitally important. James continues, But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. The meaning of these regulations and the reason for insisting that the Gentiles follow them is controversial. Some say that they represent the moral aspects of the law of Moses, which James argues are still binding regardless of what may be said of any other part of the law. Others say that these are the so-called Noachid commandments, teachings which God gave to all the nations through Noah in Genesis chapter 9, and which always defined what we might call general righteousness for all humanity. Others say that quite the opposite from the views expressed above, these commandments all relate to ritual purity and would ensure that the Jewish Christians would not become ceremonially defiled according to the law of Moses if they had fellowship with Gentile Christians so long as they lived this way. After careful consideration, I do not find any of these suggestions compelling. The first idea that these regulations represent the so-called moral division of the law of Moses does not hold up as a way in which the New Testament writers treat the relationship between the law of Moses and the Christian. There's no reference to a part of the law of Moses that was not abrogated. Rather, the apostles seem to argue that the whole Mosaic system was fulfilled in Christ and the totality of the Mosaic legal code shifted from being judicially authoritative 
to being pedagogically authoritative. That is, it has become a teaching tool rather than a judicial legislation. The second idea regarding the Noachid commandments falls short because the centerpiece of the Noachid commandments was a prohibition against taking human life, but that is not present in these regulations at all. The third idea, which is perhaps the most popular, is also the least acceptable in my estimation. The very thing the Judaizers were trying to do was to make the Gentiles clean enough that they would not defile themselves by fellowship with them. If James is binding ceremonial purity on them, then the only thing he seems to release them from is the obligation to be circumcised. But that does not fit with the controversy or the terminology used in the uh, statement that is made to them later. Circumcision was the shorthand expression for what the Judaizers were teaching the Gentiles. But it was larger than that, as Acts 15 and verse 5 shows. It was submission to the law of Moses in a fuller way. Furthermore, the prohibition against fornication cannot be considered as a matter of ceremonial purity. So what do these regulations mean? What does the consumption of blood, meat offered to idols, and things strangled have to do with committing fornication? Whatever other connections may be drawn between them, the most significant was that they all played a role in the idolatrous worship of the pagans. Things polluted by idols refers to meat served at banquets in the idol's temple, 1 Corinthians 8.10 and 10.21. The reference to things strangled in blood highlights the way that the idol sacrifices were conducted. While the sacrificial rituals of the Jews involved killing the animals in ways that allowed the blood to be properly removed from the body for its special manipulations in sacrificial worship, in Gentile sacrifices, the animals were often killed first and not properly bled, or their blood, if it was removed, was consumed on the superstition that it gave physical life and strength to the person who drank it. Sexual immorality is in reference to the temple prostitutes whose illicit services were considered an aspect of worship. In other words, the council's decree was simply this. To become a Christian, the Gentiles did not have to become Jews, but they could not remain pagans. This was a concise but inescapably clear statement in favor of justification by faith and against antinomianism. Those who follow Christ are not subject to the law of Moses, and not under law as a basis of justification. But if there is a Christ, he is Lord. And if there is a Lord, he has a law of his own. And loyalty to him means submission to his commandments, and his commandments are righteous and pure. Verse 21. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Why did James say this as the conclusion of the whole matter? He begins with for, meaning there is something foundational to their expectation of the Gentiles in this observation about Moses. When he says Moses, he means the law of Moses or the Old Covenant Scripture. Incidentally, it appears that here James uses the term Moses not merely as a name for the first five books of Jewish Scripture, but for the whole of Jewish revelation and its witness to God. In fact, that seems to be the point. The pagans can reasonably be expected to renounce paganism if they wish to follow Yahweh's Messiah, 
because the witness of Moses, which had moved throughout the world and had clearly manifest throughout many generations that there is only one true God. If the Gentiles accept the lordship of Jesus, they must also accept the exclusivity of Yahweh. Verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church, that is the congregation in Jerusalem, which these men represented, to send chosen men of their own company, some of their local members, to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. This is the first time we meet Silas, but you may remember that Judas, or Joseph Barsabas, had earlier been a candidate for the apostleship. The expression leading men may indicate that they were elders. We know that they were prophets, according to 1532. But even if they were not elders, they were among those who were gifted with abilities and offices in the body of Christ that would therefore have demanded high character and nobility as qualifications for such positions. So to call them leading men is to point out that they were loyal disciples. Verse 23, they wrote, or more accurately, they sent this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Many scholars conclude that James must have written this letter because he uses the same unique salutation in his epistle to the Jewish believers scattered abroad in James 1.1. I think it's very likely that the epistle of James was written around this same time and essentially functioned as a companion to this letter. This one was written to the Gentile believers to help settle their concerns regarding the Judaizers, and James's personal epistle was written to Jewish believers to help settle their own concerns regarding antinomianism, which someone, James 2.18, had been teaching using the doctrine of justification by faith to make his case. It's very noteworthy how much similarity there is between the language of James and Galatians, and even more so of James and Romans, quite the contrary to the common allegation that James had a theology in opposition to Paul. The reality is they were brothers in Christ and brothers in the faith. This incident certainly manifests that. In verse 24, the body of the letter begins. Since we have heard that some who went out from us, literally some of our number, that is, members of the Jerusalem congregation, have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. Thus James and the leaders at Jerusalem make it clear that Whatever concerns or questions they had, they had not sent people out to teach these things, and they did not endorse what was happening among the Gentile churches through them. Verse 25, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord, so the decision reached at the council was accepted by the whole congregation and attested to in a public assembly, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This endorsement of Barnabas and Paul as beloved was a strong expression of fellowship that meant the Jerusalem Christians considered these men very faithful and worthy of acceptance. And they reminded the Gentiles that this assessment of Paul and Barnabas was supported 
by the lives they lived and the work they did. The Gentile Christians who received this letter would remember the times when Paul especially suffered serious injury and attacks were made against his life because of his dedication to preach Christ to them. Had the Judaizers shown such love and dedication as the one they slandered as a blasphemer and a false teacher? But they went further and explained the reason for sending two noteworthy men from their own number to help deliver the letter in verse 27. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. If the letter was called into question by anyone, there would be personal witnesses to corroborate what it said. Verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. This section is essentially identical to James's final words at the meeting, but it's very interesting that he describes how the conclusion was reached by saying it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Consider that the apostolic role at the council was not to simply offer a definitive decree, but rather it was to share historical testimony. So I think that rather than taking James's words here to mean that the conference was inspired, as it were, it's better to understand that James is affirming that a well-reasoned, necessary inference drawn from and supported by the Holy Scriptures and the history of God's work among his people may be properly called a decision or decree of the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, that is, when the church had assembled, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. For now, and for this congregation, the issue was settled. Peace and unity had been preserved and increased in the body of Christ by the triumph of truth and love, and the reign of Jesus was more perfectly manifest among these people than ever before. Verse 32, Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. It was the custom of the ancient congregations to allow brethren from other places to serve and edify among them when they were present with them. That was one of the ways they manifest fellowship and fraternity to one another. Uh, the New King James Version has some manuscript problems at this point, so we'll consider verse 33 from the New American Standard Version. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. Some late manuscripts add here that it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Most likely that is not original to Acts, but was a later note that got assimilated into the text. The purpose of the note was to explain how Silas became connected with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And while it's possible that he returned to Jerusalem with the others and then came back, there is no reason to doubt that he chose to stay behind either. Verse 35, Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. Now that this great issue has been settled, and it has been clearly established among God's people what is the good news to be declared to all nations, 
It seems that Paul and Barnabas set out to train up an army of others to labor alongside them in their next great campaign to conquer the world for the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom spreads through the conversion of the lost, through the transformation of the saved into the image of Christ, through the unity of believers, and through the increase of the knowledge of God. By God's grace and power, we see these things all taking place and the earth being filled with the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week. From all the dark places of earth, heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.